0: All right, well, open your Bibles, if you have them, to Revelation chapter 2. We'll be in verses 12 to 17 together. We're continuing to take a look at the seven churches of Revelation. Uh, We've already taken a look at two of them, Ephesus and Smyrna. This evening we're going to be talking about Pergamos um, or Pergamum. As we consider these uh, seven churches These are local churches who were located throughout Asia Minor, minor, modern-day Turkey, if you take a look at it on a map. Um, The first two churches we've already looked at were the church at Ephesus. If you recall our time there, the church at Ephesus was a dynamic church. It was a church whom Jesus affirmed their works and uh, their effectiveness, their labor. They worked to the point of exhaustion. Uh, But while they were dynamic and doctrinally sound, they were declining because they had left their first love. Jesus told them, I have one thing against you. You have left your first love. Remember, repent, and repeat the first things. And so that was the church at Ephesus, and that was the loveless church. Maybe we could describe them that way. Second church we took a look at last time was the church at Smyrna. We could describe Smyrna as the suffering church. Jesus had no corrections for them, simply commendations, and he comforts them, reminding uh, them that he is the eternal and everlasting one. He is the first and the last, the one who is dead and the one who is now alive forevermore. And that was a comfort to them. Why? Because they were facing persecution, and if, even if their life should be taken, there's still hope beyond the grave. And so Jesus comforted the church at Smyrna tonight. We get to talk about the church at Pergamos or Pergamum. This was the compromising church. And so Jesus is going to have a number of commendations and corrections and some counsel that we're going to talk through this evening. The author, just to remind you, is the Apostle John. He is writing from the island of Patmos where he has been placed there to silence him from continuing to teach and preach the gospel message of Jesus Christ but how ironic is it that there he receives this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ who commands him to write the things that he's seen to write the things that are and to write the things that will be. And our focus of our study throughout the seven churches of Revelation in chapter 2 to 3 are just considering the things that are these seven churches and what we can learn from the messages that are given to each one. And so, as we consider this uh, message to Pergamos, let's go ahead and read it beginning in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write... These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. A word of the Lord. And We're going to take some time to consider the message given to the church at Pergamos and what we can learn from it as Twin Rivers Church. Let me remind you, each of these messages given to these seven churches were unique to them. They were literal local churches, but the message that was shared with each of them Was read by the others. So when you got to receive your letter, you got to read the rest from everybody else. And that means it's relevant to us because we have it recorded in the book of Revelation for us to learn from that message as well. If I could give you a few headings just to guide our study tonight, it would be the context we're going to look at first um, in verse 12. Then we'll go ahead and take a look at the commendation of the letter in verse 13 and then finish up by considering the corrections and counsel given by Christ in verses 14 to 17. But let's begin with the context of the letter. And if you've been with us and you've been reading through these letters, each of them begin about the same. Uh, It begins with the person who's being addressed, the recipient, and also a title or description of Christ who is speaking to them. And so it begins and says to the angel of the church in Pergamos writes him who has the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And so let's first talk about the recipient. Uh, it says, to the angel of the church at Pergamos, write these things, you know. And so as we've been talking through these letters, whenever we give the introduction, we talk about who are these angels? Um, are they heavenly messengers? Are they earthly messengers? They could be either. That term angelos can refer to either. But in the context of these seven local churches, it probably refers to the messenger of the church who receives the letter written and communicates it to the church body who is the messenger of the local church. Usually it's the pastor. It's the elder of the church who shares the message that's been given. I just want you to consider for this for a moment that when the pastor received the message given to the church and even read the book of Revelation to these seven churches, it's interesting to note that these pastors did not have the right to share whatever they wanted they did not have the chance to edit as a pastor you might say you know we've got some commendations like pergamos if you were the church at pergamos i'd like to share you some encouraging words from the lord jesus christ but i'm not going to share the corrections the pastor of the church is not allowed to do that the church the pastor of the church simply declares the word of the lord he's the messenger he is not the source of the message. Christ is the source, and he communicates it to the people of God, and the messenger simply declares the truth that is going to be shared. And this is the angel at the church at Pergamos. As we said, these are seven cities that are spread throughout the Asia Minor region. We have talked about Ephesus and Smyrna. Um, and we're talking about Pergamos. If you were to take a look at that map we took a look at a few weeks back, Ephesus and Smyrna were uh, seaport town cities. And so they were strategically placed. Uh, Pergamos, if you take a look at it on the map, would be the most northern of the, of the seven uh, cities of these of the seven churches. And Pergamos is up there. But if I could describe Pergamos to you, uh, the first one would be there they were wealthy but wicked. The word pergamos uh, is a term that comes from their greatest production, well, they were the greatest producers of parchment. Uh, Parchment is a paper that you would write on that was made from animal skins, and so it was a wealthy city, it was also a wicked city. In our text, you learn that Jesus describes this city as the place where Satan dwells. It is described here as the throne of of Satan. And the reason it was wicked is because you have satanic influence throughout the city. Not just in the emperor worship and pagan worship, but the persecution of these Christians as we'll talk more about that in a moment. So it was wealthy, but it was wicked. Secondly, it was powerful, but it was pagan. Some described Pergamos as the greatest of the cities in Asia Minor. It was the place where Caesar had one was dedicated to in one of those temples, and so if you wanted to come worship Caesar, you could do so in Pergamos. And so it was powerful, but it was pagan. It was almost like if you wanted to worship any kind of God, you could go there and find the the God to worship. Whether Dionysius, Asclepius, Zeus, you may be familiar with the symbol of Asclepius, that is the God of healing. And uh, the temple of Asclepius is uh, symbolized by a snake, a coiled snake, that's wrapped around um, a pole. And so whenever you go to hospitals, a lot of times medical symbols, you'll see the symbol of Asclepius, that coiled snake that's wrapped around... A pole and that's where it comes from and folks who needed healing you'd go to the temple of Asclepius possibly they put a bunch of snakes on you and they would figure out how to uh, go about healing you and so it was a combination of uh, perhaps medical practices and worship of these false idols so you could go to the temple of Asclepius you could go to the temple of Zeus the god of lightning and um, you could go to These different temples, the the temple, uh, and you could worship these various gods. And so it was powerful but pagan. Thirdly, it was um, educated but foolish. It was a location where there was one of, uh, there was a university there. There was also a very large library of over 200,000 volumes of books. And so they were quite educated in Pergamos. You had plenty of opportunities to get higher education, but in the eyes of God, quite foolish. I want to read you from 1 Corinthians 120 to 25. It says, "Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom," But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. There's no foolishness with God, but in the eyes of the world... The foolishness of God from their perspective is wiser than man and the weakness of God, even though God has no weakness from their perspective, they think God is irrelevant and so is the Bible, but the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so these are individuals who do not know the one true God, nor do they worship the one true God. As they worship these false idols, they have universities there, they have books There are 200,000 volumes there, but they don't know God. It's the place where Satan dwells. It's the place where the throne of Satan is present. And so the recipient of the letter is the angel of the church at Pergamos. And yet in this city that was wealthy but wicked, powerful but pagan, educated but foolish, you have a church of faithful believers in Jesus Christ. In a moment, we're going to see some who are not so faithful in their compromising of the truth of the gospel and compromising moral purity. But there you have the light of Christ shining in the darkness. What a wonderful encouragement to anyone who may find themselves living in a culture where Satan has influence or the culture's values contradict the values of the truth of what God's word declares. And yet as a church, no matter how small or big we may be, we can shine the light of Christ. So to the angel of the church at Pergamos, how does Jesus describe himself to the compromising church? He says, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Um, it's interesting that each of these titles or descriptions of Jesus is already listed in the first chapter. If you get to read it, you'll see all of the titles that Jesus describes himself with to each of the churches. But the reason he uses each title is to talk to the church specifically about who he is in relationship to who they are, and based on their needs. And he's, and it says here it says him who has the sharp two-edged sword. When you think of a sharp two-edged sword we're reminded that Jesus is no longer a baby in Bethlehem. Jesus is not just the suffering servant that you read about in Isaiah 53, or you read about in the Gospels who came and from heaven to earth and died a sinner's death on the cross and was buried, three days later rose again in newness of life and then ascended to heaven. Jesus is the coming judge who's coming back again in glory. And in his mouth proceeds a sharp two-edged sword and he's coming to to judge even his church. Now when you think of a two-edged sword, we're reminded that uh, having a sharp two-edged sword as a tongue, that Jesus has the the power to take life and to protect it. What a wonderful reminder that if you're going to be a follower of someone, I want to be on Christ's side. I want to be... Not standing against him. I want to be protected by him. And this is a reminder to any church who finds themselves compromising morality or compromising doctrine. This is a reminder to any individual who finds themselves um, compromising doctrine or compromising morality in their own lives. Jesus is the one with the sharp two-edged sword. He comes to protect life, but he can also take it. So we're reminded that he has the sharp to edged sword so we're just introduced to who Christ is it makes me think of Hebrews chapter chapter 4 verse 12 that speaks of who Jesus is uh, or what what his word is able to do for the word of God is living and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirits and of joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. You know, when we're talking about this sharp two-edged sword proceeding from the mouth of Christ, we're reminded that not only does it speak of him coming in judgment, but also one who holds us accountable with his word, one who pierces the deepest places of our hearts with his word in accordance with Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. You know, as we get going and we consider this message to the compromising church, what's our first takeaway in light of the context? I'd like to suggest that uh, we're invited to know that Christ will hold us accountable with a sharp two-edged sword that proceeds out of his mouth, he we stand accountable to him when it comes to our lives we stand accountable to him when it comes to our marriages if we're married our families if we have families our church if we have a church we stand accountable before him christ is intimately involved in his church he's the one in chapter 1 as the apostle john looks behind him after hearing the voice of christ with the with the with with Uh, with the sound of noise and he turns and, and he sees him. He sees him with the seven stars in his right hand representing the seven angels or pastors and walking among these seven lampstands which are representative of these seven churches. And so what does that look like for us? If I could give us just a couple takeaways, it would be this. Number one, pay close attention to what the word of Christ says. Pay close attention to what the word of God says. If he's got a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, we better be paying attention to what the truth of God's word says and the judgment of God that is warned about in the future as those who are to maintain moral purity and doctrinal truth. Um, How do we do that? Well, by reading the word of God. Because truth matters to Christ, certainly it should matter to us. If Christ comes to this church and confronts them about doctrinal truth that some are compromising within the church or moral impurity, if truth matters to Christ, it should matter to believers. Study the word of God. Memorize the word of God. Pay close attention to what the word of God says. Secondly, submit to the authority of the word of God. The kind of church that pleases the Lord, we get to see in our text this morning, is one who submits to the word of God. Of the Lord. Um, To do that, we've got to first recognize as we read God's Word if there are any areas of our life, our ministries, our families, our church that are out of alignment with His Word. You know why we study God's Word each week on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday evening or spend some time in devotional time, not just so that we can download the truths of God's Word in our mind and be smarter when it comes to the truths of God's Word, but so that we would be changed and transformed. That if there is an area out of alignment in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, that we would align ourselves, that we would fully submit to the Lordship of Christ in all things. And uh, as we, we say, you know, when it comes to my tongue and the things I say, there are some things that I'm not, that are coming out of my mouth that shouldn't be coming out of my mouth, and I align it then with the Word of God. When God's Word instructs me on how to relate to a spouse or how to relate to others in my family or how to relate to God, if any area of my life is out of alignment, I realign it and I submit to the word of God. If I could open up for discussion, I just wanted to ask these two things. First is, when you think of those who modeled a love for God and his word and encouraged your love for God and his word, who comes to mind? You know, when you think of somebody who, who recognizes their accountability before God, Loves God, loves his word. Who comes to mind and what example did they set for you? How did they encourage your love for God and his word? Anyone come to mind? Yeah. 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 Marianne mentioned just spending time with her grandparents and seeing their example and their faithfulness to the Lord. And when they spoke, they talked about God and His Word, and that was an encouragement. Yeah. Anyone else? Anybody else come to mind when you think of great example? Yeah, Steve. blessing. Anyone else want to share? Yeah. Tasha. What's that? Jay Lynn. Lynn. Yeah. Yeah. Anything you want to go in further, Tasha? (laughs) Yeah. 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 Just always talking through the truth of God's word and from our children on all the way on up whenever you have conversations. A great blessing. Yes. Anyone else want to share? Yeah. Um, If I could ask the second question, what advice would you give a new believer? You just put a Bible in their hands. What do they do with it? They just accept Christ for the first time. Yeah, Stephanie. Sure. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about the fundamentals, get into a class, and talk about... uh, In the fundamentals, you know, the first class, it talks about the makeup of the Bible. Uh... How do you how do you break down the Old Testament and the New Testament? How do you get the big picture of Scripture and uh, be able to see not just the parts but the parts in light of the whole? Yeah. Anything else? You get to put a Bible in someone's hand for the first time. What do you tell them? (laughs) Yeah, maybe be strategic. Uh, The Gospel of John's a great place to to start. Yeah. Anything else you'd share with them? They've never opened the Bible. You get to put it in their hands for the first time. What do I do with it? Yeah. Yeah. And so read it, you have your Bible, open it up, study it, learn about it, be able to understand it, maybe there's some uh, Bible study methods you might give them, Uh, read the text, read it over again, maybe take a look at the context of what you're reading, Um, yeah. Anything else? Uh, Yeah, Jared? So read it with them. Say, hey, we're going to read the Gospel of John or we're going to start in Genesis and we're going to go through the book of the books of the Bible together and study it. Yeah. Sure, sure. So you're not just reading a, a textbook. It's living. It's, it's uh, penetrating. Uh, talk to God to open up the truths of God's Word and, and speak to your heart and your mind. Yeah, just good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Elena. Yeah. It's it's not just a man-made written book. It's a God-inspired book, and God has literally given us the truth of his word. If you want to hear God speak to you, you don't have to necessarily go to sleep and dream or uh, ask somebody to tell me what God is trying to tell you. you. Just open up the Bible, and you'll get to see what God has directly for us. What a great blessing that is. Okay, so we talked about the context. It's uh, a Um, given to the angel of the church in Pergamos. It's a unique city, and there were challenges that the churches faced. But in the midst of all of the challenges, we get to see that Jesus begins with the commendations. Aren't you grateful for that? (laughs) Like as we walk through these churches, now there are going to be some who don't receive commendations. That's unfortunate. But what a wonderful thing that before we get the corrections, we get the commendations. And we get to read about those beginning in verse 13. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says to the church, I know your works. He says, I know your deeds. He told that to the church at Ephesus. I know your ministry. I know about the effectiveness of your ministry and uh, the work that you're doing for the Lord. The church at Ephesus, we said they weren't just um, commended for their work, but for their labor, working to the point of exhaustion. But what Jesus is saying is, I know your work. I know you. He's saying, I know the good things you do as a church. Isn't that good to know? Even though we're an imperfect church. Even though there are some areas of our church that we could uh, continue to pursue in terms of maybe evangelism or discipleship or uh, getting to know the truths of God's word and being instructed in them. But as we get to see this, Jesus says to the churches, I know you and I know the good deeds that you do. And so he begins by affirming the ministries of the church, I know your works. But also, he not only says, I know your works and your deeds, I know your difficulties. Jesus said, I know the difficulties of where you dwell. Where do you dwell? He says, where Satan's throne is. They're facing great difficulties as a church because of the influence of Satan in the culture. The influence of Satan in the university, the, the influence of Satan in government possibly, the influence of Satan in these, well in persecuting the church and the influence of Satan in the worship of the emperor and the worship of all of these false gods. You had your pick of which... Which God that you wanted to worship on a given day. You could go uh, worship the the God of healing if you needed some healing. You worship the God um, who is powerful. Zeus was known as the king of kings among the gods. And so you could go there. And so there's all of these pagan gods that you can go to worship. And he says that in the midst of all that's going on, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And so there are great difficulties You and I can imagine some of the difficulties that they face, let alone our own difficulties. When you think about having the opportunity to minister to others, even identifying as a Christian, when folks find that out about you, they may see you in a different light. They may consider your reputation to be negative, or some people positive. But in the culture we live in, you get judged accordingly. Um, When you think about the difficulties that you face when it comes to Uh, Being open about being a Christian in the workplace, Uh, some people are a little bit more hesitant to share that than with others or to be open about how Christ is working in their hearts or working in their lives. So he says, I know your works, I know your deeds, I know your difficulties where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. But he also says, "I, I know your devotion to me. I know your devotion to me. He says, and you hold fast to my name. I know your work, even in the face of difficulty, and this is where Satan dwells, and so there is much pressures that are placed on you and your ministry and your effectiveness in sharing the gospel message of Jesus Christ, but you still remain devoted. And in your devotion, you hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ and to my name. When you talk about the name of Jesus, what are we talking about? We're talking about the summation of his being. When you think of the name of Jesus we're not just saying some word no we're, we're we're talking about the one who came from heaven to earth who was born in a manger grew up to die on a cross and died a sacrificial and substitutionary death on the cross. The one who, after being in the grave three days, rose in newness of life, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and promised to to come back in glory. When we're talking about holding fast to his name, we're talking about him. And so we are to hold fast to the name of Jesus. How do you hold fast to the name of Jesus? By knowing who he is that you're holding fast to. Um, If you're going to take hold of somebody... Who is your wife? Make sure you know it's your wife before you take hold of her, right? How much more Christ? You need to know who you're taking hold of. And so he affirms them in their devotion to him. He says, hold fast uh, to my name. And you did not deny the faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful servant who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So once more, we learn that Something's gone on. Antipas, who is a faithful martyr. The word martyr in the Greek simply means witness. You know who else is described as a faithful witness? You go back to chapter 1, Jesus is. Jesus is a faithful witness. He's the one who remained faithful even in death. And he died and rose in newness of life. And now what a wonderful thing to be described by Jesus as a faithful servant as a faithful witness, as a faithful martyr of his. And this was Antipas. And he he says, you've held fast to my name and you haven't been deterred despite people who've threatened your life to. Someone ends up taking one of our folks from the church this week. Somebody comes in and arrests one of us. There might be some of us who don't show up next week. If you end up finding yourself sharing your faith and you end up losing your job or you simply share with someone you're a Christian, next week we may not have as full of (laughs) a, a Sunday service or a Sunday gathering. Why? Because some folks might be deterred, but Jesus turns to this church and says, even when they killed Antipas and took his life, you've remained faithful. You've held on to your testimony. You've continued to serve and follow after Christ, and so persecution hasn't got them off track. They have remained faithful to the Lord. That's a great commendation, isn't it? What a wonderful thing to be told by Jesus, you are a faithful witness of mine, and you have been faithful in your testimony even when the pressures of persecution have been added, and so he commends them. He commends them, and he says, I know your works where you dwell, your deeds, your difficulties, your devotion, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antibas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Um, if I could give us just a couple takeaways, it would be this. Know that Jesus knows the good you do, even when he corrects you. Because in a moment he's going to correct them, in the moment he's going to confront them about the doctrine of Balaam and the Teaching of the Nicolaitans. But what a wonderful thing to know that he knows the good we do, even when there are some areas where we need to change, or we need to correct, or we need to repent of. And he says, I know the good that you do. So, so first, know that Jesus knows that ministry can be difficult and messy at times. Know that he knows. There are some people that you have an opportunity to witness to in your circle of influence. It might be some folks in your family, and you know the the influence that God, well, that Satan perhaps has in the relationships that you have with others, and and you're reminded that sometimes it gets messy. If you begin to bring up the name of Jesus, there are some family members who, who don't even want to talk to you and say, get out, you know? If ever you bring up the name of Jesus or have an opportunity to witness to folks in your places of employment or or even in the grocery store, you may see some challenges. And so I know that Jesus knows the ministry is difficult and messy at times. And so I want to ask this, what kind of influence does Satan have in our culture and what does it look like to remain faithful to Christ despite that influence let's talk about that what are the challenges we face as a church in light of the culture that we live in right now what kind of influence does Satan have in Springfield in Oregon in the U.S. in our world today what challenges do you see So pride is uh, celebrated in our culture, yeah? It's about pleasing ourselves, it's about uh, focusing on ourselves, yeah? Yeah, Steve? Okay, so, sure, sure, so having those conversations where you can talk about little things about the Lord or, uh... yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Just staying focused on the gospel, saying focus on Christ when you see that, those challenges, uh, witnessing to others or sharing your faith with them, stick to the message. Stick to the message. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. What kind of, any other areas of our culture, our world that you say, hey, this is a challenge for the church right now. Yeah. I was meeting last night with uh, seven Christians. Yeah. And they just want to be all inclusive uh and open to everyone. Yeah. So they want to accept uh all the doctrines and all the different churches and just melt it all together and just compromise everything. Yeah. So Harold's been hanging out with the Universalists and uh they're saying everybody's got some truth and we just bring it all together and all roads lead to heaven possibly. And um, usually you have universalists who are accepting of all views except for those who are exclusivists in terms of <laughs> Jesus as the only way, the truth, and the life. Uh, but uh, yeah, you, you see that in terms of people who, who want to pursue religion or faith or or a God, but they don't want the God of the Bible. Um, they want multiple paths that lead to, to heaven, and we, we all have some form of truth, and that will lead us on the right path. But Fortunately, it doesn't, and it's just small twists of truth. Discernment, right, is is not being able to tell the difference between right and wrong, but right and almost right. And that's what what they do. They they twist that, yeah. Um, So you see it in the churches. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So just picking and choosing what you like in the Bible, parts that you don't like. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which they need and we all need. Yeah. And so you see the influence of the culture and the influence of the enemy leading people astray and and just compromising the truth saying i like this part of jesus i don't like that part and you pick and choose Yeah. anything else other oh yeah just the fundamentals of life yeah 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 Sure, sure. And it's, and it's everywhere, and... So it's just just knowing that God knows there are difficulties as you minister to others, as you share your faith. When it comes to your children and your grandchildren, those in your family, extended family, and as you have conversations, you, you get to see the influence of the enemy leading the people astray. And instead of embracing the truth, they find themselves moving in a different direction. Secondly, know that Jesus knows and if you are being a faithful witness or know that Jesus knows if you are being a faithful witness holding on to the name of Christ. Jesus knows if you're a faithful witness or not. As Jesus talks about their testimony, he he basically says, you're you're living out a faithful testimony. Even where Satan dwells, even though Antipas has died, you haven't given up the faith. You've held fast to my name. And so I want to talk about what does it look like to hold fast to the name of Jesus? If I could list a few things here. The first is this, hold fast to Jesus by letting go of anything that would loosen your grip. When you think of what would hinder you from truly holding fast to Jesus when, when times of pressure come? When difficulty come? When you get to see persecution actually happen in the church in America? What do you do when we're no longer comfortable? How do you hold on to Christ? Are, you, are we holding on to anything that would loosen our grip on Christ? And I would put here a few things. Our pride... Our reputation, you're holding on to that. It might be our comfort. It might be our sin. It might be unforgiveness. You can't hold tight to Christ if you're holding on to something that will hinder that. Can you think of anything else that would hinder us from remaining faithful to Jesus? What do you need to loosen your grip on so that you can hold fast to Christ. So, yeah. Yeah, so so taking your eyes off of the distractions and those distractions can loosen your grip when you're not keeping your eyes on Christ. Absolutely, going back to his word. Anything else you can think of? Yeah, Harold. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we love our stuff, and we love the comforts of this world. Um, next week, if we didn't—if it was a hot day and uh, we had no heat, or it was a cold day and we had no—or I mean, it was a hot day and we had no air conditioning, or a, a cold day and we had no heat. How many folks are going to stick around for the whole service? Let alone persecution, right? And so it's—it's—it's it's, it's just a reminder that some of us are holding on to comforts, holding on to the things of this world, and some. Some of us aren't so looking forward to, the, uh, to being with Christ simply because we're, we love this world so much. We love the things of this world so much, and so we don't look forward to the things to come. Hold fast by, to Jesus by letting go of anything that would loosen your grip. Hold fast to Jesus by praying in his name. John fourteen thirteen to 14 says, And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. How do you pray in, na- in the name of Jesus? Saying In Jesus' name, well, you pray according to his will. The best way to pray in the name of Jesus is to pray scripture. A wonderful thing to know the will of God so you can pray the will of God over your life. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And then hold fast to the name of Jesus by submitting to his reign and his rule. That's how you hold fast to the name of Jesus. What will loosen your grip is disobedience to the things of God. What will loosen your grip is, is holding on to unforgiveness in your heart. What will loosen the, your grip on the Lord Jesus Christ is, is loving the world more than you love him. And your anything that should compromise your love and devotion to him. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has also exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name. His name is above every name. Is his name over your life? Is, it, is your mind surrendered and submitted to him? That in the name, of Je- at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We get to experience heaven on earth when we invite the reign and rule of Christ into our lives. When Christ is ruling and reigning in our decisions... When Christ is ruling and reigning in our relationships. When we love unconditionally, sacrificially, and selflessly. We invite the rule and reign of Christ to come over us. So that when someone mistreats us or, or commits an offense against us. We don't react in the flesh. We react in the spirit. Because we serve a new master. Not our flesh or our own desires. We serve Christ and him crucified. And lastly, Hold fast to Jesus by asking for help. If you find yourself having a loose grip on Christ, but he's holding on to you, right? But if your grip is starting to become loose because of the things in the world, ask him for help. I don't know about you, but when I wake up each morning, my grip tends to be loose. I tend to be distracted by the things that are present in this world. I tend to... Love the comforts of this world. I tend to love myself more than I love my wife and my children because I want me served instead of them served. And so I need God's help every single day to hold fast to his name so that when hard times come and difficulties come, even persecution should come, my grip is firmly, is firmly um, grabbing the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... Um, we talked about the context, the commendation. Let's talk about the correction in the rest of our text together, uh, beginning in verse 14. It says, but I have a few things against you. Can you imagine the pastor of the church sharing the, the, the commendations and then saying, I have a few things against you, straight from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's, a, that's quite the moment. I want you to consider that for a moment. If Christ were to take a look at your heart, your mind, your life, just you as an individual believer, would there be anything in your heart, your life right now that he would say, I have a few things against you? Did you take a look at our church? Would he say anything? I have a few things against you. The church at Ephesus, he commended them and then he corrected them and said, I have one thing against you. You have left your first love. The church at Pergamos, I have a few things against you. He goes on to talk about those and they're due to moral compromise, it says. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. And so there are some in the church who are remaining faithful. They have a faithful testimony. Even when Antipas is martyred for his faith, they stand firm and they hold on to the truth of God. And his Persecution isn't able to break this church, but there are some among the church who are starting to compromise the truth. And it says here, um, it says here, but I have a few things because you have those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam who taught Uh, Balak to put a stumbling block Before the children of Israel To eat things sacrificed to idols And to commit sexual immorality And so what we're talking about here Is moral compromise Some of you are wondering Who's this Balaam guy And who's this Balak guy Well you go back to Numbers 22 to 25 And you learn the story What you learn about there Is that there's this guy This king of Moab By the name of uh, Balak And he has trouble with the children of Israel and so he needs somebody to curse them and so he calls upon a prophet by the name of Balaam and says, Balaam, I'd like to hire you and pay you and I'll treat you real well if you curse the children of Israel. Balaam basically says, well, I can't say anything except God allows me to. Um, Long story short, uh, Balaam finally ends up meeting Balak and... He is instructed to curse the children of Israel. And three times he's instructed to do that. And each time, instead of uh, cursing them, he blesses them. (laughs) Isn't that funny? And so after he, instead of um, cursing them, he blesses them. In chapter 25, we get to read about in Numbers that the people of God end up getting led astray. They start to intermarry. And it, what ends up happening is the judgment of God comes on them and 24,000 of them are put to death immediately. Why? Well, elsewhere we see in Numbers 31, to 16, what happened? It says here, And Moses said to them, Have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women caused children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. And so Balaam counseled, Balak, that if you can't curse them, corrupt them. That's the doctrine of Balaam. If you can't curse them, because God wouldn't let them be cursed. He says, every time he tries to curse them, he ends up blessing them. If you can't curse them, corrupt them. How did he corrupt them? He said, Balak, have them intermarry. Have them compromise their sexual immorality. Have them compromise the truth of what God's word says. Because if you can't break them by persecution when it comes to the church, the doctrine of Balaam would say, break them by perversion. This church remained faithful to the testimony of the truth of God's word, but that which broke them and that Jesus now confronts them about is that there is now perversion in the church, moral compromise and doctrinal compromise. We get to read elsewhere about the Doctrine of Balaam in 2 Peter 2.15-16 2, when it's talking about false teachers, it says they have forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. And Jude 11, it says, Woe to them for they have gone the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah, beware of the doctrine of Balaam, that if you can't curse them, corrupt them. How do you corrupt them? Small compromises. When it comes to morality or sexual morality, you start to you start to justify your sin. We can do cohabitation. What's wrong with that? You know, we're just living together. Shouldn't I get to know somebody? Um, personally, before I... word in the Bible does it talk about cohabitation? You start to justify these things. You start to justify well, everyone's doing it in the church. Can I, can I uh, um, um, try it out before I, 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 I get married? And so the the ways of the world, you easily justify your sin. And as you justify your sin, this one small compromise leads. To another small compromise. When it comes to doctrinal purity. That is compromised as well. And what the false teachers ultimately teach is. You know when it comes to God. He's not as holy as you think. God is pretty holy. He takes sin very seriously. Um, he is a holy just God. And he cannot put up with sin. Or anyone who falls short of his standard. And in his justice he punishes those who are wicked. We cannot The truth of God's word And we can't compromise The moral standards That he has set in his word And that's ultimately What leads to the corruption Not only does he say I have this problem It's the doctrine of Balaam Balaam Who taught Balak To put a stumbling block Before the children of Israel To eat things Sacrifice idols And commit sexual immorality Which led to 24,000 of them Being killed Verse 15 says Thus you Also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. And so, um, I just wanted to bring you back to chapter 2, verse 6. If you remember when he talked to the church at Ephesus and he affirmed them, he said, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know exactly what the teaching of the Nicolaitans was, but if Jesus told the church at Ephesus... Um, you, hate, you hate their deeds and he commends them for that. It's talking about folks who have compromised doctrinal truth and therefore compromised moral truth. And saying God, he'll, he'll be open to uh, allow certain kinds of sins and you can live however you want and they'll deny the reality of our accountability before the Lord. Some may deny the return of Jesus Christ who is going to come back to judge the quick and the dead and he's going to come back as a conquering king. First time he came as a suffering servant, he's coming the second time as a conquering king to judge us. And it tells us that's why Jesus is described here as the one with a sharp two-edged sword. He's coming in judgment. The text goes on to say, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus isn't messing around. He tells the church as a whole, repent there are some within the church who have compromised doctrine and have compromised morality and are starting to influence others in the church and Jesus says don't put up with it. He says repent, change your mind that will lead to a change of direction because if you don't, he says, I will <laughs> I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, Jesus says, I'm coming in judgment. So repent. Then he goes on to say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When it says, uh, if you have an ear, hear, Jesus is not just saying, listen to what I have to say. He's saying, heed what I'm saying. You know, if anyone has children and you tell them, Uh, hey, can you mind uh, cleaning up your room or cleaning up around here? And they don't. You say, did you hear me? And when you say, did you hear me? You're not asking if they actually heard you. You're asking them to be obedient to what you've told them to do. Because there are going to be consequences, right? Or there should be. If you're not going to go do what I just told you, I want you to hear me and I want you to heed what I've said. Did you hear me? In other words, are you going to go and obey me or not? To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Okay, now what are we talking about? This is a reward. What is the reward of those who are faithful, who hear what the... What Jesus has to say to his church. And this is not just a message for Pergamos anymore. This is the rest of the churches and our church and all churches and all generations. If you have an ear, hear what the Lord Jesus has to say to you and you'll receive bread from heaven. That's manna. What is this manna? Well, we don't know exactly, but when you think of who Jesus is and what he claims to be in John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus said, I will satisfy and quench your spiritual longing in your heart. Once you partake of the truth of God's word and you put your faith in Jesus in response to the gospel, receive forgiveness of sins, you never have to be hungry again. You never have to be thirsty again. You have the Lord Jesus. But also it says, I will give him a white stone And on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So what is the name on the stone? Well, no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, but what it really communicates to us is the acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be received and be with your Lord forever and ever, and you will enter into his rest. That's the joy for those who remain faithful, those who serve the Lord, those who listen up and consider what Christ commends and also consider what Christ corrects and repents and turns from the Lord. doesn't put up with moral compromises in the church doesn't put up with doctrinal compromises in the church concerning the things of who Jesus is. So I wanted to open it up as uh, we finish up uh, just some questions of application. If I could add one one application, it would be perversion, not persecution, is a greater threat to the local church. And some people in America are afraid, oh, what if persecution ever comes? You know, what if somebody, you know, we lose our jobs, we lose our businesses, they place a bunch of restrictions on the persecution. I mean, that's the worst thing that could ever come to America, but you get to see in the book of Acts and you get to see throughout church history, persecution has actually been a great blessing because it's a purifying um, thing. It helps purify the church. It helps clean it up. And those who are truly faithful are going to be faithful, even in the face of persecution. So the greatest threat to the church is not persecution. Persecution will help more than it will hurt. The greatest threat is perversion. The greatest threat is corruption. The greatest threat are small small moral compromises, small justifications of our sin. No longer calling it sin, calling it an alternative lifestyle. No longer calling it sin, but coming up with our other synonyms for it. And so, um, guard against doctrinal and moral compromise in the local church. You know, I wanted to share this in terms of, I was just reading an article just this past week, and uh, Albert Moeller was uh, writing an article about uh, an, influ- an influential pastor in the U.S. named Andy Stanley. And in this article, he was just sharing about an upcoming conference that Andy Stanley is going to be holding at his church. And I want to read this to you because I want to remind you when it comes to discernment, discernment is not just being able to tell the difference between right and wrong, but right and almost right. So let me read this to you. He published an article the other day about an influential pastor who's hosting a conference next week. And so it's going to happen, I think, Friday or Saturday Uh, called the Unconditional Conference at the campus of North Point Community Church in metro Atlanta area. And the website for the conference bills it as a two-day premier event, specially designed for parents of LGBTQ plus children and ministry leaders. So you identify, not just children, but ministry leaders. And it says, you will be equipped, refreshed, and inspired as you hear from leading communicators on topics that speak to your heart, soul, and mind, it promises, one statement stands out in the description. No matter what theological stance you hold, we invite you to listen, to reflect, and learn as we approach this topic from the quieter middle space. From the quieter middle space. Let me tell you this. It's not wrong to minister with grace. It is good that we teach truth and do it in love. We, we shouldn't compromise love but we certainly don't compromise truth. There is no middle ground when it comes to the truth of God's word, and when you take a look at the speakers who are going to be coming to the conference, you can actually read the article, one of a couple of the gentlemen actually are legally married to a, the, a, a of the same sex. And so, when you consider the folks who are being invited to have a conversation about these issues, it's one thing to teach the truth and do it in love. It's another thing to do it in love at compromise of the truth. And what we need to do is tell the difference between right and almost right, and it's just a small twisting. And so we're just invited to beware. And so I want to ask this and in light of that. How, how can we guard our hearts, relationships, and churches from compromise? You can take any one of those or our, our hearts our, our lives our relationships our church how do we how do we guard against the small compromises of justifying sin justifying doctrinal error say that Nikki yeah so we we've got to know the truth of God's word you got to if you don't know the bible um, how do you tell the difference between the two certainly yeah anyone else When it comes to the absolute truths of Scripture, uh, black and white, um, Christ is quite straightforward. There's no middle ground in terms of uh, what Christ tells us about the truths of his word. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, I need help because... uh, there's plenty of ways to be compromised. What What would you say are ways that I can guard myself from um, doctrinal error, from moral impurity, just justifying sin in my own life? I heard prayer. Yeah, your love and devotion to God, not just committing yourself to knowing the truth of God's word but getting the truth of God's word through you if you read the Bible and you don't get closer to the Lord what's the point of it we need to grow in 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 who G, in our knowledge of Christ in our relationship with him certainly yeah Errol friend, you, uh, face you, face face oh yeah. Yeah, so I need accountability partners. I need faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church who are going to call out sin when they see it, who are going to call out doctrinal error, even a small departure when they see it. I I need folks who are going to be faithful to hold me accountable and hold one another accountable. Um, What sins do individual believers in churches tolerate at times? the the hot button term of these days is be tolerant and yet we don't tolerate sin we don't tolerate evil Christ doesn't we shouldn't to be yeah <laughs> yeah so you're going to offend people, but you can do it in love, right? So there's a balance between teaching truth, do it in love. Um, even when you see Matthew 18, the whole purpose of confronting a fellow brother or sister in Christ in the church is love for the sake of restoration. Um, you come to him directly, you come with two or three, you bring it before the church, all in order that that brother or sister in Christ might be restored and so that they might see the error of their way. And you win a brother to Christ, yeah. Well, I would think, uh, well, in the church especially, but in terms of a fellow believer, a fellow brother or sister in Christ who uh, professes to be a believer, if there is sin in my life, I would want them to confront me, even though they don't come to my church or someone in my family to, to come talk to me. If your house is burning down, right, and you don't know it, and you've got your brother or sister from a different house come over and they say, hey, your house is burning down, it would be unjust for them not to tell you and so it's a good thing to point your your backyard's on fire right now you might want to you might want to spray it down so I I would say yeah and and doing so in love and uh, speaking truth into their life and yeah it's whoever God put in your circle of influence yeah yeah Oh, yeah. Yeah, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can destroy the soul, uh, certainly. Yeah, and sometimes we fear man more than we fear God, and we seek to please the preferences of man over the preferences of the God we worship and serve, and we need to be aware of that. Any other sins we, we might tolerate or put up with in the church in America today? Yeah. just being honest before the lord and uh, he sees everything and yeah absolutely yeah any, any anything else any any final thoughts as we wrap up together as we consider the the compromising church i think the, the biggest takeaway for us this morning is, is don't compromise even the little things don't justify small sins Watch out for doctrinal error when it arises and be diligent to pursue the things of Christ. Sometimes when you consider the culture and the pressures we feel, um, in the end, there may be times and there may be places where Christ doesn't allow us to escape. Even though that's what we'd be praying for, he allows us to endure and he's the one who gets us through it. He got... Them through it, as we uh, got to see in our text, as he encourages them to repent and go back, and he can get us through it. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful uh, for our time together in your word as we get to hear the commendations and corrections given to each of these churches. Father, we pray, Lord, that we can consider what we can take away from uh, what we've talked about. I I pray, Lord, that uh, you would just examine our hearts right now. Examine our church. If you had one thing or a few things against us, Lord, that you would bring those things to light, that your word, uh, which is sharp, uh, Lord, in piercing and and that that which holds us accountable, would pierce our hearts and show us uh, those areas of our life we need to repent from, turn back to you. Lord, if there's anything that is... Uh, loosening our grip on the name of Jesus that's keeping us from remaining faithful to you both now and in the future, uh, even when difficulties and pressures come from the culture around us. We just pray, Lord, that we would let go of those things so that we can take hold of you. We pray, Father, that our number one desire would be our love for you and are expressing our devotion to you in all things we pray that we would not compromise but that you would our be our top priority father we thank you for your word and we pray that it would continue to guide us this week and we ask it in jesus all this in jesus name amen